Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome in, everybody. I'm Tracy Trimble. I'm one half of your host today. The other half, I'm staring at a screen here on Zoom. The, everyone's favorite, Craig Cottle. Craig, how you doing today? I'm doing good, man. <laughs> how are you? I, I'm good, man. We switched to this Zoom recording, and I love it. I love the ability I to look in that screen and at least see somebody other than just talking into the airwaves and not seeing people's faces. It's been great. The downside is you have to look at my ugly mug, I guess. <laughs> no. <laughs> Today's topic, we're going to be talking about hunter conservation, something that Craig is uh, very passionate about and rightfully so. But before we jump into it, you want to give us a little update on Nature Reliance School, what you've been doing? Dude, it's been busy. Uh, we did a, uh, thanks to you, led by Tracy Trimble himself, Scott Tracker too. What was that, two weeks now, two weeks ago now? That was incredibly popular and successful course. Uh, very sleep, very little sleep was done. Very little uh, good eats was done. Not one of those classes where it's a level one where we get to kick back and enjoy a lot of downtime. It was pretty much on the whole time. Uh, then I went and spent a week down, um, I guess, central western Kentucky is the best way to describe it, down around Green River Lake uh, and Green River WMA. Taught a bunch of conservation officers from the state of Kentucky uh, in basically rural operations, which included a little survival, a little a little bit of land nav and a whole lot of man tracking. Those guys and gals are on point when it comes to tracking. Uh, it was the whole lot of the stuff that we do in tracking, as you know, in particular is teaching people just had to be in the outdoors. And obviously the COs already have that. So the track line I left for there, they were so good. I usually keep everybody together on test day and I split them into three different teams and had three different bad guys running from them. And they didn't know that when they got there. So that was a nice surprise that they had to figure out on the ground, which they figured out, pushed them out. Team that was tracking me, I I took them for about two miles and they did exceptionally well, exceptionally well. So I was real pleased how that went. Then I just did a bushcraft class where that's where we 
use not we use axes more than we use knives, which is an oddity for most classwork. We used axes basically all weekend long in bushcraft making mallets and we ended up making some camp chairs. We made some bow saws, man, tongs. We did a whole lot of cookery type stuff. It was yeah, it was good, man. Good people, good times. This weekend I thought was the best weekend we've had for weather in a while. Chilly, man. It was chilly. And I love it when it's cold. The yeah, humidity man. has just been killer around here this summer. Yeah, I'm glad that's it looks like it's over at least. Yeah. Yeah, we'll probably have another hot day or two, but I think the majority of it's over with the good camping weather, hiking weather, anything mm-hmm. outside. Yeah, man. Well, you want to jump into this hunter conservation topic? Yeah, let's do it, dude. I love this topic. Uh, it's something I've been learning about, particularly through you and listening to your conversations with people. But tell our listeners, uh, what is hunter conservationism? Well, I think there's a lot of words that kind of get thrown in together if you don't put a lot of study into it. And I was confused by these for a long time. And like I'm sure a lot of our listeners are and and uh, started putting a lot of effort into understanding that these words like preservation, conservation. Uh, stewardship, those words kind of get all thrown together and they're very, very different. Preservation is where you take an environmental area and you literally preserve it. You don't let anything happen to it. You do everything you can to secure it so that whatever is there remains there. And there's several different land grants or properties throughout the country and specifically right here in Kentucky that are listed as preserves, which is really good. I think it's important that we preserve land areas. The problem that happens with preserves, if the language is such that you can't kill anything on it, you have to preserve everything, then when, because it's not an if, but when invasive species make contact with those preserves, then they take over because you're not allowed to kill them either. And so some language has changed, particularly here in Kentucky for nature preserves, such that we can do that now. But there were other properties throughout the state that did not have that. And so these preserves got eaten up by bush honeysuckle or winter creeper or, you know, something like Bradford pears. And they're, and they're not allowed to cut them down. They have to leave them there because it is a preserve. You can't use uh, things like Roundup on them. And I'm not saying we should or shouldn't. That's for somebody smarter than me. But you can't use them even if you wanted to. And so... That is a problem. Conservation, the way I look at it, it's more of a handshaking opportunity between, as it relates to hunting, hunters, fishermen, as well as our fish and wildlife or fish and game commissions, depending on what state you are, working in concert with one another so that game and fish species thrive and you conserve and you stay within hunting seasons and fishing seasons and limits and stuff of that nature so that you don't over harvest. And then stewardship is where maybe you're not a hunter or you're a fisherman, but you, you can be I'm not saying you can't be, but you interact with the environment so that you can help uh, a positive growth in the environment. And so those words all are, th- these are words that I'm, these definitions are not definitions I'm giving. I'm just making up my, my understanding of them here. But that's kind of how I look at them based upon my experience. So if I'm looking at the term stewardship, would that apply to someone like myself who's got 20 acres of woodland that I want to jump in and maintain, keep the invasives out, make for a productive area for animals to come into? Yeah. And it could be from, from something the size of a yard 
in Lexington, Kentucky, where all you have is your yard and you make sure that you don't have winter creeper growing up the trees, mm-hmm. uh, all the way up to people that have 2000 acres. Uh, it, it, there's good stewardship can be happening anywhere in the state. And, you know, a perfect example of this is the calorie pears, uh, what most people call the Bradford pears is that that is still an ornamental tree that can be bought and sold in Lowe's tractor supplies, rural Kings and areas like that. You can still buy these things. And we know that these are an invasive species. And if you have calorie pears in your yard, which a lot of people do, then remove them and replace them with something else. I mean, that's just, it, it could be in a neighborhood. It could be anywhere to be a proper steward of the environment. Uh, from my perspective, it's not that hard to do either and not expensive. Wonder what's the holdup for places, uh, say these big box stores selling calorie pairs. Why can't they understand that it's not the best for our environment? My personal experience, because I've got literal personal experience with this in my hometown, because uh, I'm not on our local, what's called our local tree board, but I have influence within it. And so I lobbied with them. And that's, it's a small town. I'm not saying I'm some lobbyist or anything. That's just a word I'm using. I I tried to work with them and say, Hey, let's make a united front and go to Lowe's and tractor supply, for example, and say, Hey, can you all pull your bush honeysuckle or Japanese honeysuckle and your Bradford pears and and stuff of that nature from your shelves? It was just, there's people, and, and this is what's so crazy about it to me, Tracy, is there's people on the tree board that have calorie pears in their, in their yard. And I don't, and that's part of the reason I'm not part of it is that you've got people on a tree board that are there because they're doing resume fodder and they don't really know anything about trees. They're just padding their resumes so they can appear as if they've actually done something for the community. When quite frankly, they haven't. That's, that's a local criticism for me here in Winchester. I'm not saying it's that way for everybody, but if there's anybody from Winchester listening, then that's, that's a problem you all for us. As I tried to convince these folks to do exactly that and it just fell on deaf ears i i felt like it was the way to do it was to to go with the united front from the t- tree board i tried some things i used to write articles for our local paper and a lot of them had to deal with conservation and stewardship and stuff of that nature and one thing that i pushed actually ended up being very successful. We talked about the the invasive species of of cats being released from homes and, and running loose. And some of the efforts that I put forth in that actually helped a lot and made big changes here in Clark County. And my next goal was to hit up basically invasive species. And then I quit writing for them for uh, several reasons, but I quit writing and then I lost that that voice. So I don't know how I'm going to go about it doing here locally, but I think it would take something like that to, to call people out. And I can, that's what I did with the cats. I called people out, showed them the science and how it's very destructive. And you can't argue with that particular science and the destruction that cats play and killing songbirds and whatnot. And Bradford pears are no different. Uh, it's just, it's ridiculous. So as a homeowner, if I wanted to further my focus on stewardship, let's go with that for now. Is there a county level or state level agencies out there or organizations I could get up with that would uh, help educate me and, and push me in the right direction? Absolutely. I think the biggest one for us here in Kentucky, and not all states have this, but most do, is 4-H. 4-H has been incredibly instrumental in training kids, 
and training adults and being a resource for adults, uh, both farmers and just average ordinary people to in, in your neighborhoods to go into the 4-H and get educated on uh, those typically what they're called as agriculture extension agents. And then you have youth development agents within most offices. And then there's a host of other people, administrative people and, and, and any number of different jobs within 4-H. And it's been my experience that they are really good at uh, communication skills. They're really good at communicating needs without being, you know, overwhelmingly smart aleck about it. I mean, they're just really good people. They've got great programming and they have things that are available for the public. And then they've got resources there because they're basically extensions from the university of Kentucky. And so the university of Kentucky who has all these really intelligent people that are doing research and study can push that down to people who are not necessarily doing the research and study, but are responsible for communicating that to other people. And, you know, we've talked about it in one of our more recent podcasts, but the master naturalist program is an extension of that really, which is just making citizen scientists out there. And so that's the big one. I think that's be really helpful to people. Just check in with their 4-H office. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the fire maple backpacking and camping stove system. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must have in your gear. Best part, it's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Is that the same type of agencies for the topic of um, conservation and preservation? Uh, would those be the same agencies that you'd contact and go through? Yeah, conservation in particular, but you know, there's usually there's usually somebody within 4-H extension offices that are agriculture focused because that's I don't know, really know what their founding principles are on exactly what it is. I, I, I'm a 4-H black powder shooting coach, so I have to study a lot and actually take a test on 4-H. But it, it's primarily agriculture-based, but that also includes wildlife. So there's usually somebody in a lot of these offices that has interest in wildlife either on their own or a, like one of the guys here in our local office in Clark County has a degree in wildlife biology. And so he has a pretty uh, a pretty educated look. He's a young guy and he's a pretty nice guy too. Um, he's got an educated look on wildlife and how to help people do that on their farms, whether it's a woodlot or if it's an open area or what have you. But the big agency for wildlife in particular, because that's a topic of uh, focus here is Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. Uh, they've got private lands, wildlife biologists. I think they may have changed that up a little bit, but there's people dedicated to private lands because private lands is the primary uh, land owner in the state of Kentucky. It's not government owned land. So if we're not doing things as private land owners to enhance wildlife, then wildlife's going to suffer. So they, they, and their responsibility is both to, to regulate hunting and fishing as well as to help educate the public and private lands, wildlife biologists do that pretty well. Which is quite different than 
going out west because they have a lot of of uh, private or public lands out there as opposed to private lands around here. Yeah, and you know, I didn't know how much until I went to Utah and taught that tracking course for Fieldcraft. Uh, and they were pointing out how much land is BLM owned land. And I just, I mean, I always knew that BLM land was there, but I do all my hunting here. I've never been out elk hunting in the Colorado Rockies or anything like that. So it's, uh, it's everywhere, BLM land, you know, national owned land. So that was very different than what we have here in Kentucky in particular. And most of these Southeastern states are the same way. It's mostly private land-based ownership. And so if private lands, you know, I'm a big fan of liberty and freedom. So I want landowners to be able to do what they want to do with their land. But I think we need to do everything we can to, you know, for example, educate landowners about water quality. You know, if you're doing certain practices, you shouldn't do them. Like, I think I mentioned this on one of our podcasts real early on, but when I was young, man, we used to take oil and dump it into sinkholes and we used to drag cattle into one specific spot that was a sinkhole and all that is contaminating our water sources. And thank goodness somebody somewhere started educating farmers that those are bad practices. And so that education has helped increase our water quality here within the state of Kentucky. If uh, Kentucky Fish and Game are going to work hand in hand with hunters out there is going to take funds, where do these funds come from? Well, primarily fish and wildlife funds here in the state of Kentucky and most states that do this are funded by the sale of license and permits through the state of Kentucky. So your hunting folks and your fishing folks are the ones that fund directly by purchasing a fishing license or hunting license or deer permit or something, the budgets for our Fish and Wildlife Commission here in the state of Kentucky. A lot of states are like that. Those monies, we don't get any monies in the state of Kentucky from the general fund and no tax dollars go to, uh, no state tax dollars here go to the general fund. Everything that you see Fish and Wildlife doing from cutting down fields to prescribed burns to law enforcement and and uh, wildlife biology for that matter are all funded from primarily from from the sale of licenses and permits. There's a couple of acts out there. The Pittman-Robertson Act is a big one where, and this, this, is, this is one of the most fascinating things to, to look into. And when, if we have listeners that are not hunters and fishermen, when I say this, you're going to think I'm just making this story up. This is worthy of your research to see if I'm right or wrong. But Pittman-Robertson Act came out of somewhere around the 1930s. And this was when basically we're in a depression and the Dust Bowl was just recently happened and just, the United States of America is in a bad way, but a lot of sportsmen lobbied the federal government to literally tax us on purpose. And they said, we want to give more money to particularly wildlife conservation. And so what they did is they put a tax on firearms and ammunition in particular. And so the Department of the Interior gathers all that money from the states, from all manufacturers on, uh, again, ammunition and firearms. Whether you're buying a firearm for hunting or you're buying a firearm for sports shooting or whatever, it doesn't matter. Firearm ammunition, it gets taxed. And I think it's right at 11%. All that money goes to the Department of the Interior. And then there's certain criteria that each state meets and they get a percentage of that particular um, money that's set aside and they get to use that for wildlife conservation inside of their own state. So that all gets 
divvied up. That fund alone, that act alone is worth over a billion dollars every year. That's one of the things that I've said for years now that your your typical person that loves to go hiking, that loves to go particularly seeing wildlife, whether it's elk or rabbits or songbirds, it doesn't matter. White-tailed deer, it does not matter. You have to hug people that buy guns and ammunition because they are funding it. And if it wasn't for those funds, again, license sales, permits, and the Pittman-Robertson Act, we wouldn't have wildlife. They would have been obliterated a long time ago. And we proved that in our country. And this is one of the things that I disagree with a lot of hunters on. I disagree with a lot of hunters on this is that they don't feel I've heard the phrase, well, you can't kill the king's deer without approval from the king, which is basically saying Kentucky owns elk and they own deer and stuff of that nature. And that's not true. I get why they're saying that because it's regulated and you have to pay a license fee and all the stuff that goes along with it. But when hunting was unregulated, we basically wiped out nearly to extinction several different species. And it was only after regulations started occurring that we were able to positively manage the deer herds and we brought elk into Kentucky and we, you know, we tried to bring uh, like pheasant in Kentucky, but that didn't work. And then, you know, we've helped rough grouse populations and, and songbirds and on and on and on. There's so many things that we have done because we have organized and worked within the scope of educated people, biologists, conservation officers, uh, administrators at Fish and Wildlife to, to make it happen in our various states. So you mentioned the Pittman-Robertson Act of, um, I got written down here, 1937. Okay. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable that people would go and ask to be taxed during that, during that time. So it shows you how focused and how in love they are with animals and hunting and they want to preserve them and build them up and, and really protect them in the long run. Absolutely. I'm, I don't know another group like it. Yeah, I, I, I truly don't. I mean, you think about some of these social issues that we're having right now. I don't want to get all political or anything, but you think just pick out one of these social issues that we're struggling with. If that group goes to Congress and asks them to tax them, not everybody, just them. Hey, I love this particular political movement and I want to support it. I want you to tax me doing this so that we can raise money to help that. Nobody's doing that. But sportsmen and sportswomen have been doing that since 1930s. There's just nothing else like it. It's just, it's absolutely remarkable from my perspective. Yeah, it is remarkable. And then the the general public get to benefit from that. Absolutely. And I'm okay with that too. I'm okay with that too. I'm okay with, you know, there's some things like, I think we'll get into a little bit later, but you know, if I buy a sportsman's license and there's just a lot of things that I don't hunt anymore and I, it's been a long time since I've been fishing. I'm not a big fisherman, but I want to help water quality and I want to help fisheries, uh, fish populations throughout the state, whether it be lakes or rivers or streams or whatever. And so I'm a fan of that. Uh, I'm a big fan of that. And so others benefit from that even beyond those of us who engage in, you know, hunting and fishing. That's for sure. Yeah. Let's don't leave her those that like to fish out. Uh, the yeah, Dingle Johnson Act of 1950. Yeah. So basically my understanding is that the Pittman Robertson Act was so successful that fishermen stepped up uh, a few years later, I guess that's right. A little over a decade and said, Hey, do that to us too. And so every time you buy a fishing line, everybody, every time you buy a fishing pole, 
there's tax that goes to conservation efforts for specifically for fish, which a lot of time that includes water quality. So that's another thing that the general populace gets a benefit from because you've got a bunch of people that are fishing out there. And whether you agree with fishing or not, you get to get in your canoe and paddle down the Elkhorn Creek or get in a canoe and go down the Rockcastle River or whatever it is here in the state of Kentucky. It's a clean water source. And some of that has to do with people that fish, whether you do or not. And I think that's, I quite frankly, I think that's the American way, the way it should be. Part of the funds you, you was talking about going into um, or from the Pittman-Robertson and license and tag is going into the preservation of the animals and deer and, and everything. But part of that money goes into uh, hunter education. How important is that hunter education program in today's society? I think it's incredibly vital. Have you been through hunter education? Did you I go through that? I did not have did? to go through. You and I weren't required at our age to do it. I did it anyway because I wanted to, but uh, when I was like 12 or 13. But, you know, it's it, it's a pretty broad-reaching program, and I, I can specifically speak to the state of Kentucky. They teach everything ranging from fair chase methods to proper fishing to conservation and stewardship and hunting and survival and safety and gun safety and all the things that go along with it. One of the greatest lessons I've ever seen play out in front of me, I learned at the hunter education course. Uh, and, and I'll tell this story. So those of you who are training others can utilize this because I've utilized this, but we went on a break during this hunter education course. It was on the day that we were supposed to shoot. When we came back, there were a bunch of guns laying on a table and people came in from class and picked them up and were looking at them and, sighting down the barrel and all kinds of stuff like that. When we started class, the instructor went over and picked up the guns and he ejected shells out of nearly every one of them because nobody had looked to see if they were loaded or not. Now they were dummy shells. He was doing this as a means of education. And quite frankly, I think it is one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned as a young person that stands with me today. Actually, I mean, I don't want to make something that small into something really big, but it really informed how I teach people. There's times where I surprise people like that because you will never forget stuff like that. And because I'm a big proponent, I know you are too, on teaching things that people can retain because that's a good way of teaching. It worked. And you just felt bad. Not to toot my own horn a little bit, but the first one I picked up, I ejected a shell out of it. And he stopped me because he told me, so my dad had taught me right. And he saw what I was getting ready to do and he stopped me and, and he put it, he said, just put that back down. <laughs> and uh, so he could, you know, he could have his moment in front of everybody, which was great. And I'm glad that he stopped me because it, it was a very valuable lesson, but you know, gun safety is critical. I'll probably upset a lot of people, but one of the things that I think is missing from gun ownership these days is gun safety education. Back in the day, dads, moms would teach their children about gun safety because there was a gun hanging over the mantle or the, over the door frame. And so it was just a absolute necessity in back in a certain time frame. And for some reason, over time, we've gotten away from doing that and teaching gun safety to children. We we've taught them. It's just like, don't touch that stove. It's hot. They're going to go over there and put their hand near the stove. I mean, and don't touch that gun. Well, they're going to go check them out. And so it's, it's just human nature that we do it that way. And so I think to take the mystique out of them, we should be in the business of teaching kids uh, gun safety 
and that's a proven method to to take down a lot of the issues that we have with guns in our country and fish and game through the hunter education program is one of the ways that you can do that. I think that it's a reflection upon our culture today. I think there was a generation or two that just got away from being outdoors, being hunters. Yeah. I'm not it seems like sure. a theme that me and you've been talking about in it. So. It's like a generation or two. I mean, mm-hmm. it's in, in whether it's survival and safety or guns. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's interesting. We talked about our dads and maybe that be that generation maybe right before them has kind of gotten away from it a bit. And I think that uh, hunter education is great for our kids coming up because I don't think they're getting it at home. No. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I taught a course for a middle school in Richmond, Kentucky, man, this is seven, eight years ago. I taught a gun safety course uh, and it wasn't for fish and wildlife. I, I was contracted to come in and teach this. And I took guns literally into the school and taught kids about gun safety and how to avoid them. And, you know, the primary rules of gun safety and all the stuff that goes along with it. And there's no way that would happen today. In my mind, that was a very forward thinking person that hired me to do that. Those kids that were trained are safer than other kids, quite frankly. They are. If I'm a hunter, what can I do to be a part of this hunter conservation movement or programs? Well, if you're a hunter, you already are. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that a lot of people, It doesn't seem like it makes sense, but by killing certain wildlife, we're helping the population. And that's critical to being able to do it properly. And so taking out X amount of number and wildlife biologists are the ones that put those numbers together and they do the research and study. And most of your wildlife biologists are heavily, heavily trained in statistical analysis because they have to do so much of it. But just by being a hunter and following regulations, the way they are set by your state, you are being a huge asset to proper conservation and stewardship of our wildlife resources. When you step out of that, when you're killing multiple bucks, when you should only kill one, or you go into an area that doesn't have the opportunity to kill more than one doe and you're killing five, then you're causing problems. Uh, Poachers are incredibly problematic because that data never makes it to fish and wildlife and they they well, they do. They they have outlier information they put in their statistical modeling to take up for illegally killed animals and in roadkill and everything. But but uh, when that stuff's outside that data and decisions are made, then it can be very problematic. So it goes beyond just purchasing a license and partaking in the hunting process. As hunters, what else can we do beyond that? Well, the big one would be be good observers and inform fish and wildlife when things seem out of the norm. So if you're seeing deer that are suffering from chronic wasting disease, which might be an issue within the state of Kentucky for the first time ever, particularly down in Western Kentucky, then uh, report that. And, you know, for example, I was reading some some data yesterday or not a data, but an article yesterday because there was a there was a deer killed in northwest Tennessee that had CWD, chronic wasting disease. Chronic wasting disease is a disease that if it gets in a deer head, could basically wipe the whole herd out. And so this deer was killed with CWD in Northwest Texas. So they have set up a a zone in Kentucky around that area where if you kill a deer during rifle season, you have to take it to a check station like we did back in the old days. And biologists will be on hand doing testing on the tissue 
and I don't know how that goes down. I don't know how they do that sort of testing, but they have to do testing on, on tissue samples to determine if CWD is in the herd down there. And then they will make decisions on what happens next after that. And so if you kill a deer down there and you don't take it in, well, that's another thing that could be problematic. So wild hogs, we were talking about this on our Facebook page in the last couple of days in our Facebook group. You know, wild hogs have been an issue in Henry County and they pretty much eradicated those. And now we've got other pockets of the state that have wild hogs issues. And we see these big wild hog hunts happening in Texas and Louisiana, and everything where hogs are everywhere. And if you see wild hogs and you're not doing what is necessary to eliminate them, then we're going to have that here in Kentucky. They're going to be everywhere. And when wild hogs get fixed in an area like Kentucky, then you can kiss the Daniel Boone National Forest goodbye for everybody, hunters, fishermen, backpack, backpackers, hikers, you know, if they get established there, then it'll destroy the forest. It will make it unrecognizable. It'll look like a moonscape. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't widely known, but somewhere around 30 years ago, I was contracted with another person to go into an area and kill about 20 wild hogs in a small section of the Daniel Boone National Forest. And so uh, that was back when I was, anyway, I was, I was a mercenary when it came to such things. And we went in there and we killed hogs and we killed hogs and we killed hogs and I track them and hunt them and killed them. And uh, so we wiped out that small segment that was actually in, in uh, Lee County. That was, uh, was a necessary part of, of maintaining that part of the forest because it was when we, it was interesting because they were let out. They were basically wild hogs that had gotten out from an enclosure where a, where a woods hippie was what I lovingly called them. Just a guy that was living off the land had been raising some hogs and he let them just run and they got out. And I think it's two to three generations after the original domestic hog, you have a wild hog. Those hogs were everywhere in that part of the world. And you turned a corner on this road. I'll never forget seeing turning this corner and it just looked like a moonscape out through the woods where they had just destroyed everything. Trees were dying. There was no herbaceous plants at all in the understory, nothing. It was just a moonscape. We did some horse riding down in Tennessee one time. The property we were on is privately owned, but they ran a horse camp and they had wild hogs. Mm-hmm. And whenever, whenever you ran into the area where they had been, everything was just tore all to pieces. They eat everything. Yeah. And they will root and expose the roots of trees and shrubs and they'll Which eventually kills them. die. Yeah. Yeah. So, so hunters I mean, pay. and that's another thing right there, man. I mean, your, your typical person, I mean, I know you hunt, but let's say you, you just ride horses. If hunters aren't doing what is necessary, then you don't get to enjoy your horse riding or other people that just backpack, they don't get to enjoy their backpacking. And so it's just a, I, I, that's why I think they're quite frankly, I would love to start or be part of a hug, a, hug a hunter program here in Kentucky or some variation of it, where we recognize hunters for what it is that hunters are doing for all of us here in the state. I think much, much of the way that the master naturalist class is trying to create the uh, citizen scientist, the uh, hunters, hunters of the, of of the area can be the eyes and ears uh, and and report the data back and and could go a long ways in helping and promoting uh, different type of programs. I was especially your deer hunters and turkey hunters that spend a lot of time afield. Who better out in the middle of the woods and a lot of it happening on private land is out there. Who's spending that much time in the woods? I mean, I know the farm that I deer hunt on, the landowner hardly ever walks her woods. 
she's a cattle farmer. So she takes care of her cattle and she rides around on her tractor and four wheeler and what have you, but she hardly ever walks the woods anymore. It's us hunters that come into her property and let her know, Hey, this is going on back there. You need to know this kind of thing. And that's true throughout the state. The money from logging operations, if you've got a farm for a business comes in decades, not a year or two. It's easy to walk away from them and not pay attention too much to what's going on in the woodlot. And that's why, you know, woodlot conservation and education is a big part of what UK does as well. So we covered what we could do as a hunter. Let's say that I'm not a hunter. Let's say that I'm just someone who likes to, uh, you know, go out and hike and camp and spot animals and watch and bird watch and all this. How can I play a role in this hunter conservation programs? Several different ways. One would be by a hunting and fishing license. In the state of Kentucky, and I'm sure there's like this in other states too, we have what's called a sportsman's license. So you pay one fee, and last year I think it was 95 bucks, and it's probably something close to that now. And that gives you the right to hunt and fish and do just about everything in the state of Kentucky. And so it doesn't include a duck stamp, I think. But but, um, you can buy that even if you don't hunt. That's $100, and you know that every dime, every penny of that $100 is going to wildlife or fisheries conservation. It just, it go, that's, it, it doesn't go anywhere else. It never goes to the general fund, even though, again, I'm, I don't want to play too many politics, but you have to, our governor here in Kentucky tried to get into that money recently and, and we hunters and fishermen fought him tooth and nail to keep him out of getting uh, fish and wildlife funds to go back to the general fund. And we won. And so I'm thankful that we, we had people that worked hard and diligently to make that happen. That's one way because you can put your money directly to wildlife that way. Other ways is that, you know, for small woodlot owners, for example, the woodlot owners uh, symposium is a thing that happens. I think the University of Kentucky is the one that puts it on. And those that own, I can't remember how many acres it is, but if you've got X amount of acres, even 10 acres or something of, of wooded area, then you can go and be educated by the University of Kentucky on the things that you can do to help manage your woodlot, whether it's 10 or a hundred or a thousand acres, and they'll help you. I was an instructor for that program this past year as well. And so we were teaching, uh, we were teaching edible plants at that course, but that's another method. And the other one, I think that we've been talking about in the podcast and just in general at nature Reliance school is the master naturalist program. Uh, there's a wildlife section there within master naturalist where you get to learn about both game and non-game species. And what you can do to help to build up even non-game species like songbirds or something. If you like seeing cardinals, what you can do to make sure that your bird feeders are doing what they appropriately do. So it's not putting out bad seed and it's making healthy animals, when to put them up, when to take them down, uh, whether to use them, not you, whether to use them or not use them at all. I mean, these are all things that are covered in something like a master naturalist program. And again, seek out your 4-H extension offices. Uh, it's a fantastic program 4-H is. And so they're always ready to help educate people throughout the state. We just finished up a section on, um, invasive species for master Mm -hmm. naturalists. That was this past Friday. So if you're a, even if you're not a hunter, if if you have some wooded land, being able to identify the, um, invasives that are coming in on your property and getting rid of them in a proper way. Uh, is going to help in that stewardship of that, of that land. And and, yeah. and like you said, since we're all, you know, Kentucky is mostly private land. If we don't take care of the private land, then public land is going to fall as well. 
You know, another one that you know, we haven't mentioned yet, what we should, because this I know this is happening in other states as well as our own, is we have nature preserves throughout the state of Kentucky. And they, I, quite frankly, I just don't think they get enough press here in the state of Kentucky. There's some really nice nature preserves. And the Office of Kentucky Nature Preserves oversees it. Usually they're pretty heavily involved in the Master Naturalist program that you're doing now. And um, you've got these areas that, that uh, again, the laws change recently, even though they're called preserves, you can go out there and take out certain species of invasives. Because one of the things that happened many years ago is that they were noticing this because they were preserves that some of these invasives were getting a foothold there and then just expanding out. That law was changed so that you could go into a nature preserve and for, for in, in essence, take out the cowrie pears or the bush honeysuckle or uh, winter creeper or something of that nature. What else can you think about hunter conservation, stewardship? What else you want to throw out to our listeners? I think the big thing is that I, I doubt there's very few people, and there's some maybe down in Western Kentucky that got upset because the elk herd destroyed some gardens and stuff of that nature. But for the most part, the human and wildlife interaction is a positive one for most people. Some of us don't like getting raccoons in our chickens and we don't like uh, rabbits in our garden and raccoons tearing down our corn and stuff like that. And I get all that, but being an interactive part in, in wildlife habitat improvement, which there's programs where you can actually get dollars back from fish and wildlife at the state level to do certain improvements on your land. Uh, these are all things I think we should get into and, and seek out, seek out opportunities where we can actually be engaged We've talked about it before, or at least I have. The leave no trace movement is is an okay movement where you don't touch anything, you don't do anything. But quite frankly, we all have an effect on the environment. And so if we can try our best to educate people so that we know how to have a net positive effect when we go into the environment. Case in point, I taught a bushcraft class this weekend. I took two hours to teach people about tree identification and how to, we were going to cut down a tree, a really sizable dogwood tree. Well, I took them to an area and proved to them that within a couple of years, that tree was going to die and I could show them why. And I educated them on that. And now they know that. And now they have that so that we weren't just indiscriminately cutting down a tree. We just cut down trees that were actually were going to die anyway. And I'm not saying they wouldn't have value even when they died because trees do, but at the very least, we can learn how to interact if we bush us bushcrafters and us survivalists even are in the business of going out and cutting something live. Then we need to know that we're going to have a net positive effect when we do that rather than a net negative effect. I think it's really critical. I do think that's one thing that's missing in a lot of our bushcraft classes and our survival classes is this stewardship of the land. Yeah, when you say our, you're not talking about Nature Blind School. You're talking about the industry as a whole, right? I hope. Yeah, the industry <laughs> as a whole, because you just never see that. You never hear it. No. Uh, people do not cover it. And, Dude, there was uh, a. It, it's ahead, it's bad. No, I'm just saying it's uh, that's a topic that really, really needs to be addressed. And I'm not going to name the names. I'm not going to be that unprofessional. But there was somebody in class this past weekend that had been to another school where they literally went in and they were going to use some trees to do stuff. And he said, Craig, he said, I'm not lying. I bet we cut every tree down on a whole acre of trees. We cut every single one of them down and we were making stuff out of them. He said, I just felt really wrong about it. And I think that, you know, that's a big part of who we are at nature Reliance school, 
But I, again, I think it just has to, it, it can be done. It can be, it just takes some education. People are not educated. And that's why you do what you do. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. So we can help people learn this kind of stuff and, and have an influence positively on the environment. Good information. We appreciate you taking your time to throw all this out to our listeners. Um, we'll have some more topics on this. I'm sure more podcasts in the future, because this is a, this is a topic that affects you no matter where you find yourself as a hunter or non-hunter. Uh, if you like to walk out your front door, uh, this is a topic that you need to to grow in. So we appreciate it. Uh, to our listeners out there, we appreciate you jumping in and listening. We ask for any uh, reviews that you can give to us. Give us a big five-star review. Pass this along to um, anyone that you know of, your family and friends, anyone that, that's uh, outside that can benefit from this. Stay tuned for our next podcast, hopefully within the next few days. Come on, join in, and let's learn together. And that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Blinds podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Blinds School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.